Welcome to this special episode of the History of European Theatre podcast. Special because today, 3rd of May 2021, is the first birthday of the podcast. A whole year ago, I released the first episode on the pre-Greek history of theatre, with pleasure and relief in almost equal measures, but also with a lot of trepidation. I couldn't help but wonder how my own little effort would be received. I understood that podcast audiences take a while to build, and that my own favourite subject was in quite a small niche. But it's impossible not to watch those unique listeners and download numbers, at least it is for me. There is an etiquette amongst podcasters that we don't publicise download numbers so as not to discourage those with small numbers or prompt comparisons that don't apply. Most podcasts have a USP that means comparison with another podcaster's work just results in the classic apples and oranges comparison problem. But enough to say that in the last year I've produced 47 episodes on Greek and Roman theatre and two bonus episodes. That's some 23 hours of audio content. 214,000 spoken words, not including those spoken by my two guests, Dr Palliard and Jimmy Walters. The result is, I'm pleased to say, tens of thousands of downloads and a growing number of regular listeners. The podcast has been listened to in 88 countries around the world, which is quite mind-blowing. At the one-year mark, I'm feeling grateful to you for listening, for engaging on Twitter and Facebook and email, and encouraged to carry on for at least another season and probably longer. So, to mark the first anniversary of the podcast, here are a selection of short, true stories from the history of the theatre. There is just one story from each century of the theatre in London, from the 17th century onwards, and a selection of the kind of thing that we'll get in the future. Enjoy. 1680. During his exile in the Netherlands, the future Charles II often visited the theatre. There he had the unusual experience for an Englishman of seeing women on stage women actually playing female parts. Now Charles was a man who enjoyed the company of attractive young women, and as an extension of that, he enjoyed the fact that he could see women on stage. So much so, that he decided that the long-standing tradition in England, that female roles were played by teenage boys, was something that should change when he got his throne back. This tradition had also been a source of distaste amongst the Puritans who had taken over England after his father had been ousted, but for entirely different reasons. They thought the theatre was quite corrupt enough, without having boys in dresses on stage being rude, crude and raped, murdered and married at regular intervals. Once in control in London at the start of the Civil War that saw Charles's father beheaded in 1694, the Puritans soon shut down all of the London playhouses. The creation of Cromwell's Republic seemed to mark the end for theatres, but when Charles the Younger did regain the throne for the Stuart dynasty in 1660, Theatres were reopened under a royal charter, and this provided for the removal of the ban on women performing on stage. Almost immediately, one of the most famous women of the theatre through all time came to the fore. Not only did she have a successful, if relatively short, career, but she became the king's favourite mistress. I refer, of course, to Nell Gwynne. Because of this change in theatrical policy, she went from being the orange seller in the intervals to a leading lady on the stage of the Theatre Royal Drury Lane. It was there that diarist Samuel Pepys saw her perform and recorded his enjoyment of her talent and looks in just about equal measure, calling her pretty and witty. Those talents suited the light comedy she was presented in, but she was also, by all accounts, adept at judging the mood of the audience. But it's an offstage incident in her life that perhaps it best illustrates this. 
One evening, when she was on her way to the theatre to watch a play, her coach was surrounded by a loud mob, who proceeded to rock it back and forth. It was a grand coach, and the mob mistakenly believed it was the transport of the Duchess of Portsmouth, another of the king's mistresses, but she was a Catholic, a rather unpopular thing to be in those days. Nell didn't cower in the coach hoping for rescue, but pulled down the window and, realising the crowd's mistake, stuck her head out so that they could see who she was and shouted, Good people, you are mistaken. I am the Protestant whore. At which point she was allowed to carry on on her way, unharmed, to the cheers of the mob. As the king's favourite, she was lavished with gifts from the merry monarch. Possibly the finest was a house, 79 Pall Mall. It was a grand, newly built house that backed onto St James's Park and just a short carriage ride from the king's official residence, St James's Palace, and his actual home in Whitehall. By now, Nell had relinquished the stage for her life as the king's favourite, but had lost none of her boldness of character that had brought her such success in the theatre. She was the king's favourite and she knew it. She continued to perform, but now just for one man, the most important and powerful man in the kingdom. They toured this gifted new house privately, or at least as alone as a king ever is, and before they retired to the bedroom upstairs, the king indicated to a lackey to bring the deeds of the house, which he signed over to Nell there and then, with no doubt all the flourish you would expect from a cavalier king. Nell opened the document and read it carefully. When she saw that the house was to be given to her leasehold, she went to the writing desk and picked up the quill the king had just used. He looked confused, concerned, and no doubt surprised that she was displeased with his gift. This house is given leasehold, she said. I will accept nothing less than freehold. As your majesty well knows, I have always served freely under the crown, and I expect a freehold in return. The grace or otherwise with which the king replaced the word leasehold with freehold on the document is not recorded, but he did it. Still today, that house, 79 Pall Mall, is the only property in that part of St James's that is still part of the Crown Estate, but held as freehold rather than leasehold. 1790 Kings and queens continued to frequent the theatre in London. A century after Charles II, King George III was on the throne. As the turn of the century neared, he was a troubled man. The American colonies had been lost 20 years previously, a fact that left him in a permanently bad mood despite the passing of time. And more urgently, he also worried about the rising threat of revolution in Europe and the events in France in particular, which must have seemed just a throw of an aristocrat's severed head away. Closer to home, his relationship with his son and heir, the Prince of Wales, had all but collapsed. Father and son were very different men, who were never going to see eye to eye. The father resented his son, who only appeared to be concerned with enjoying himself and working up a fortune of debt. And the son felt no better about his father, who resolutely not only refused to give him any meaningful power, but just would not die and make way for his turn at monarchy. But none of this put him off going to the theatre, and the Theatre Royal Drury Lane was one of his favourite haunts. His firstborn son also shared his love of theatre, so, inevitably, there was one evening when the management of the theatre were informed that the King and the Prince of Wales would both be attending the current production. The theatre was given an extra special clean and the royal box was made ready to accommodate both parties. For all the disruption a dual royal visit incurred, this was good business for the Theatre Royal, confirming it as the premier venue in town, a place to see and be seen in. 
George III was a man who liked things done properly, and all court and royal etiquettes had to be observed scrupulously in his presence. So he arrived at the theatre in the royal carriage with a horseback guard of honour. They were there for the pomp and the ceremony, part of the king showing himself to his people, but also there for practical purposes. Given the mood on the continent, an assassination attempt was not out of the question. The king's arrival passed off as expected, and after a brief wave to the gathered crowd, he entered the theatre foyer and was welcomed by the theatre management and staff. As he got to the end of the greeting line and was about to make his way to the grand staircase that led to the royal box, there was a commotion outside that then became a commotion inside as the Prince of Wales and his entourage arrived. The king was instinctively not pleased to see the prince and slipped easily into one of his famous rages. This only worsened when his son wished him a good evening with a carefully crafted bow that was both casual and suggestive of forced deference to let all around know exactly what he thought of his father. The king strode purposely towards his son and quickly covered the length of the foyer. But instead of waiting for his son's offered kiss or handshake, he pulled his arm back and landed a punch on the side of his heir's face, which sent the prince falling backwards. He was only saved from being sprawled on the floor by the presence of his entourage, who caught him on the way down, which was no mean feat. Even as a youngish man, he was overweight thanks to the many fine meals he enjoyed on a daily basis. The captain of the guard quickly put himself between the two royals, ostensibly protecting the king, but in reality the prince probably benefited more from his presence than the monarch did. After a moment's standoff, the king left for the royal box, while the prince was helped to his feet and dusted down by his friends. For a moment the theatre management thought they had a horrific problem. How were the two warring royals to be put in the same royal box? Surely there would be further blows if they had to spend the next two hours in close proximity. Not even their interest in the play could be guaranteed to bring a temporary peace. But they couldn't turn the prince away. Rumours were already circulating about the king's mental health and the possibility of the Prince of Wales becoming regent for his father. This was the man who would most likely be holding the reins of power very soon. Fortunately for the theatre, the prince had had enough humiliation for one night and took off with his entourage to find another venue for that evening's entertainment. But the management were sensible. They realised that this could all happen again on another night, and the next day they held an emergency meeting to discuss how such a scene could be avoided in future. They decided that there was only one possible course of action. It was expensive, but well worth the cost of the bad publicity that another royal brawl would produce. This is why the Theatre Royal Drury Lane is the only theatre with two royal boxes, separated by a very wide stage, and each with its own grand staircase. George III went on to live for another 30 years and completed a 62-year reign, although for some of it he was certified insane and his son ruled as the Prince Regent for nine years. He then ruled in his own right for a further ten. For theatre folk, George III is now best remembered through Alan Bennett's The Madness of King George III and the rather jaunty portrayal of him in the musical Hamilton. Safe to say, I think, the King would not be happy about either. Enough of kings. They have a long association with theatre, but so do others. Ghosts, for example. London Theatreland is full of ghosts and ghost stories. The area around Covent Garden and the Strand is particularly densely populated with ghostly thespians. Here's the story of just one of them. William Terrace. Maiden Lane is a narrow back street in the Covent Garden area, now populated mostly with restaurants eager for the pre- and post-show dining required by the patrons of the many theatres nearby. 
In fact, London's oldest restaurant, Rules, is in this street. The stage doors for the Adelphi and the Vaudeville theatres open out onto Maiden Lane. The larger of the two theatres, the Adelphi, was reconfigured and moved slightly in its long lifetime, as a result of which the stage door has moved slightly from its original position. And when the ghost of William Terrace is seen, which it is often, it is seen at the old stage door entrance. William was a matinee idol of late Victorian London. Like many, he had tried a number of jobs, including a brief stint in the Merchant Navy, before he discovered his talent as an actor, and made his West End debut aged 21. He was strikingly good-looking, and became popular playing romantic leads, action heroes and Shakespearean roles. He spent his early years on the stage working for the leading actor-manager of the time and the first knight of the theatre, Sir Henry Irving, but found his true home at the Adelphi, as part of the company there who specialised in melodrama. On the 16th of December 1897, William was 50 and at the peak of a very successful career, but unemployed actor Richard Prince was waiting for him at the Adelphi stage door. Prince and Terrace were known to each other, Terrace having helped Prince to get minor roles in productions that he was involved with, but they had had a falling out when Terrace sacked Prince from a minor role because of something he'd said that was offensive to Terrace. Still feeling some attachment for the young actor, Terrace arranged for the actor's benevolent fund to send him small subsistence payments, but Prince was a lost cause. He had developed an alcohol problem and, in a familiar way, spiralled slowly downward to the point where he was becoming mentally unstable. He blamed William for all the misfortunes that had befallen him in his life and he confronted him in the theatre on a couple of occasions, on one of which he had to be forcibly ejected. It was shortly after he had been refused further monies from the fund that he left their offices and crossed the street, waiting by the Adelphi stage door. As William arrived to get ready for that day's performance, Prince jumped out of the shadows, pulled a knife and stabbed the unsuspecting actor repeatedly. William can hardly have known what was happening before he died at the scene. Soon after William's death there were reports of his ghostly presence trying to enter the theatre by the stage door, and some say he haunts his old dressing room. More surprisingly still, his ghostly presence is also seen near the entrance to the Covent Garden Underground Station, which was newly built at the time of his death. Perhaps he had a fascination with the newfangled underground trains, but it's also said that he had a sweet tooth and would often stop at a bakery on the way to the theatre for a pastry or a cake. The baker's shop was in the entrance to the new station, which raises many questions about what a ghost can do with such delicacies. We can all hope that the cake and sticky buns are pleasures that can still be enjoyed in the afterlife. As for Richard Prince, he was arrested, tried, found to be mentally unsound and sentenced to life imprisonment in a secure mental hospital, where he happily passed the years organising the other inmates into theatrical entertainments. 1927 The British are renowned for their good behaviour in the theatre. None of this rapturous applause for the star for just managing to turn up and get ready on time and walk on, and certainly no cheering for the scenery just because it's been revealed, and don't get me started on whooping as a means of showing appreciation. However, this doesn't mean that we British can't be rowdy. We just reserve it for the failures, and we do like to revel in those. So this story, of what is perhaps the worst opening night ever in London's West End, is one that brings a warm glow to any Englishman, especially as the story concerns two of the most successful men in the theatre ever, Noel Coward and Ivor Novello. What, I hear you say, Noel Coward had a flop? Yes, it's true, and it wasn't only a flop, but a complete disaster. 
It was such a disaster that its title soon became linked in theatre parlance to the worst of the worst. You might overhear a couple of actors in a late-night bar. How was your show? asks one. Oh, darling, replies the other, casting his eyes upwards to the ceiling. It was a complete Sirocco. Coward was at the beginning of his career, and this whole story could be seen as a salutary lesson in the overconfidence of youth. But Coward, at any age, never lacked confidence, in public at least. His play is set in Italy, and concerns a holidaying English rose, who gets and succumbs to the attentions of a swarthy, macho local man, whose Italian temperament eventually leads him to committing some brutal violent acts on her. Clearly, what was needed here was a dark, handsome, muscular young actor who could believably seduce the young woman despite his violent tendencies, which needed to be seen brewing below the surface of his lovemaking to the poor girl. Quite inexplicably, Coward's choice for the role was his friend Ivor Novello. We remember Novello now for his romantic musicals and many songs that have spawned an award for excellence in music, but at the time he was a matinee idol of a rather effeminate type. The only thing that makes any sense about the choice is that Novello was a fantastic box office draw, and with both their names up in lights on the same production, Coward probably thought that they were onto a very successful winner. When Ivor read the script, he very sensibly saw this piece was not for him, and he turned it down flat. It's likely that he not only saw that the part was wrong for him, but the play was, frankly, not much good. But the ever-confident coward would not be deterred and cajoled Ivor over much eating and drinking, trying to persuade him to change his mind. He pointed to the huge success of his first play, The Vortex, and no doubt also pointed in flattering terms to Ivor's own fame and successes. But Ivor would not be moved. In turn, coward would not be deterred. He had experienced difficulties in the birth of the Vortex, where the rehearsal period had been traumatic and the dress a disaster. Show-cancelling creditors had only been warded off by a last-minute loan from a friend. Noel had put everything on black to get that play on, and it was, in the end, a rip-roaring success. His judgement, he knew, was good, and this was the way producing great theatre works. He knew that Sirocco would be a similarly great success. Still Ivor resisted, until Coward admitted defeat and declared that the only option was for him to take on the lead role in Ivor's place. Now, either this was a huge bluff by Coward, or he truly did not have enough self-awareness to see that he was the least suitable actor to play this testosterone-filled Lothario that he'd written. Fearing his friend really was crashing towards a career-wrecking disaster, Ivor relented and agreed to play the lead. Coward was convinced that he had the production back on track. Frances Doble, a popular stage actress, had been secured for the female lead, and paired with the handsome and popular Novello, Coward could almost taste the box office receipts coming in. Ivor, however, was only confirmed in his opinion as rehearsals commenced. He knew he was not right to play this red-blooded, hot-tempered Mediterranean. He was a matinee idol that women adored because they felt safe with him, even if they didn't quite understand why. He could not get away with playing a charismatic but sleazy woman-beater. Everyone, he was convinced, would see through it. And he wasn't wrong. On the first night, the audience quickly took against him, and the early catcalls soon turned to mockery when he shared a passionate scene with the unfortunate Miss Doble. As they held a long clinch, some in the stalls started to make kissing noises. It was reported that at one point when Ivor's character threatened to go to his mother, someone shouted out a helpful suggestion as to what he might do to her when he got there. Some, sitting in the more expensive seats in the circle, took offence at the bad behaviour down below, 
and rather ironically joining in with it, soon programmes, boiled sweets and various bits of debris were being casually dropped from above in an effort to get those in the cheaper seats to behave. The disdain for the play by some of the audience even extended to Frances Doble, who was probably the most blameless person in this whole sorry affair. Even her acting generated some whistles of disapproval from the auditorium until someone shouted out, Give the poor cow a chance! At which point, the actress broke out of character, walked to the front of the stage and thanked the man concerned as the only true gentleman in the theatre that evening. In that fine theatrical tradition, the actors muddled through to the end of the play and then presented themselves for a curtain call, rather bravely in the circumstances. The boos overwhelmed the more polite but lukewarm applause by a long way. Even British reserve and politeness could not prevail in these circumstances. The director, Basil Dean, had been eating alone in a nearby restaurant during the performance, contemplating the severe dent in his reputation that this play was sure to be. He returned to the theatre just as the curtain fell. Now Mr Dean was severely deaf and one has to wonder how he functioned as a theatre director, but there it is, he was, and from the wings he mistook the jeers for cheers and in a state of happy amazement bounded onto the stage to take his first night bow. His relief was quickly doused as he saw the audience who were becoming more and more angry at this cast who behaved like they were receiving fantastic applause. Things only got worse when, in another inexplicable move, Coward strode on for his traditional first-night author's bow, as if nothing untoward was happening. Presumably he was so angry with the inability of the audience to properly appreciate his play that he'd lost all reason, or he believed that he could turn them around just by his own presence and strength of character. That, presumably to his surprise, did not work. So he took the hand of Frances Doble to present her for another bow, at which point a cat call of hide behind a woman would you was heard from the mid-stalls. At her wit's end, Miss Doble could only think of giving her prepared speech, thanking the audience for their warm applause on what, she said, was one of her best nights ever in the theatre. It's reported that Mr Novello then led Miss Doble off, smiling. He, at least, could see the funny side. But Noel Coward could not, especially when someone in the crowd at the stage door spat at him and he had to have his coat sent to the dry cleaners. Not surprisingly, Sir Rocco had a very short run. What is surprising is that the reviews were not wholly bad and didn't damn the piece completely and that it survived for another 27 performances before it closed. Later, Coward said... My first instinct was to leave England immediately, but this seemed too craven a move, and also too gratifying to my enemies, whose numbers had by then swollen in our minds to practically the entire population of the British Isles. The London West End is littered with tales of shows that were presented bravely, passionately and sincerely, but nonetheless sunk without a trace, but perhaps none have sunk quite as deep as Noel Coward's Sirocco. Every year, almost. Robert Baddeley was born in 1733 and, so the legend goes, spent his early life training and working as a pastry chef. One of his employers was the theatrical actor-manager Samuel Foote, and it's likely that it was he who persuaded Robert to take up acting. He made his acting debut in 1760 at the Haymarket Theatre in a production by Foote, and he was soon seen regularly on stage in London and also in Dublin, but spent most of his career at the Theatre Royal Drury Lane. He married the actress Sophia Snow, but they had a troubled marriage with their domestic disputes sometimes becoming public knowledge. At one point, Robert had to insist that his wife stop living with a Dr Hayes, 
and to settle the matter, the parties became involved in some financial negotiations. These escalated into a dispute that resulted in a duel between Robert and George Garrick, brother and business manager of David Garrick, the most influential actor-manager of the time. No one was hurt, and in the end Robert and Sophia separated. Robert continued to act in the Drury Lane Company, playing lower class and other characters. His rendition of Polonius and Bottom were both well regarded in their time. On the 19th of November 1794, he was getting ready for the evening performance of Sheridan's The School for Scandal, when he was seized by a recurrence of the epilepsy from which he'd suffered for many years. This fit was severe, and he died at home the following day. Having fallen out with his wife, Robert's life and friendships were all based in the theatre, and in the Drury Lane Company in particular. So in his will he stipulated the following. I hereby direct that the sum of £100 stock in the 3% consolidated bank annuities may be purchased directly after my decease, to produce as nearly as possible the sum of £300, which I direct to be applied and expended on the purchase of a twelfth night cake, or cakes, and wine and punch, or both of them, which, it is my request, that the ladies and gentlemen performers of Drury Lane Theatre will do me the favour to accept on twelfth night of each year in the green room. Every year since 1796, on Twelfth Night, the directors of the theatre organised the evening as instructed, and the cake was eaten, with a glass of wine or punch raised with thanks to the memory of Robert Baddeley. Well, almost. Since 1822, the celebration has been the responsibility of the Drury Lane Theatrical Fund. This fund was set up in 1776, the year of the American Revolution, by David Garrick himself, and has the distinction of being the oldest theatrical charity in existence. Robert Baddeley was one of the fund's trustees. The tradition was maintained, but gained some new traditions too. The cake is now crafted to reflect themes from the show currently in production in the theatre, and of course there have been a few years that have been missed when the theatre was dark between shows. When the cast of My Fair Lady celebrated the tradition in 1963, it coincided with the 300th anniversary of the Drury Lane Company. A special punch bowl was commissioned to mark the anniversary, and has been used in every commemoration since then. The casts of the musical Miss Saigon ate and drank their way through more badly cake, wine and punch than any other cast, ten years worth in all. There is no mention of Robert Baddeley's ghost intruding on this ceremony that even George III would recognise, and one can imagine the spirit of William Terrace may well be scenting the cakes from across Covent Garden as he tries to enter the Adelphi yet again. There was no ceremony in 2019 as the theatre was closed for refurbishment, and none in 2020 as the reopening was delayed by the effects of the Covid-19 pandemic. But in 2021 we're expecting the theatre to reopen with a staging of Disney's Frozen, and this tradition will, I'm sure, be celebrated again in 2022, and the cake will, no doubt, have a lot of frosting on it. So while we remain concerned for the people who work in theatre and the future that might be possible for them, let's also look back at the long past of theatre, its traditions and the stories it has spawned, and see the long tradition that survives. It has been broken at times, for sure, but it has always come back, revived and reinvented, and let's be hopeful that that is what will happen again in the coming years. So thank you for the year past and here's to the next one. As always, thanks so much for your support and if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. 
Thank you.